So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 to 20. It's about the birth of Samuel. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came from Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, then said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. Now it's chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah's prayer. Then Hannah prayed and said, my, Lord rejoices in, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and he has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. 
He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Serene. Uh, This term, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel. And and to help our church family get into this book, uh, we've got actually two resources for you. Firstly, uh, we've got these blue daily Bible reading guides, and you can pick it up on that back pew there on your way out. Uh, Secondly, we're going to be uh, studying 1 Samuel in our growth groups, and the Bible study booklets are also available on that back pew. Can I say if you're a growth group leader, uh, can you please pick up your stack for your growth group. But can I say, even if you're not in a growth group, even if you're not part of our church family, you just want to see what 1 Samuel is all about, for free, please help yourself to a copy. Uh, now, 1 Samuel is most famous for the story of David, you know, the guy who killed Goliath. But as we work our way through this book, this term, We're going to see a stack of important events, other events, in the life of the people of Israel. And these events are not only fascinating and engaging, but they'll teach us a lot about how God does things in in his world and how we're to live as God's people. So can I encourage you, please, keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 1, page 415, if you've accidentally closed your Bible. And please remember, there'll be a time for questions after the talk. If there was ever a passage that had to say something about dedicating a baby, this is the passage. But how about before we get into God's Word, will you please join me as I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. And I pray now that you'll help me to explain your word clearly and faithfully tonight. And as we start looking at this Old Testament book, we pray that you'll grow us in our understanding of you. Please grow us in our understanding of how you do things in our world and help us to respond to you in the right way from what we see from your word tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at the state of our world, we've seen this la- these last two weeks, the Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka. Uh, just on Friday this week in Cyclone uh, Fani, the biggest cyclone uh, in 20 years that India has experienced, is that they're experiencing it now. Now, I don't know about you, but you might have had some harsh, hard experiences in your own life. And the question that may keep being asked is, does God care about the tragedies that we see on the news? Does he care about the ups and downs that we experience in our lives? Has that been a question that you've asked before? In the world of the events of 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel are facing a crisis of their own. It was a leadership crisis which resulted in chaos and instability for their community. Uh, the setting of 1 Samuel is around about 3,000 years ago. We're looking at the day around about 1050 BC. And this period of time is often called or referred to as the time, the period of the judges. Uh, much of that period is recounted in the book of Judges. 
But the last verse of that book summarizes the whole situation. Let me show you what it says. It says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Life in Israel was far from what God had promised before when the Israelites entered the promised land. And so the question, does God care, was a question constantly asked by the Israelites. Well, as we look at the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, we'll see that God does care. And that he's in control of all things. And we're going to see it through the story of Hannah. And we're going to see three things tonight. We're going to see firstly Hannah's situation, then Hannah's prayer, and thirdly Hannah's song. Uh, Firstly, Hannah's situation. Now, it might just seem a bit out of place with the, the backdrop of the national leadership crisis in Israel when Samuel starts off by introducing us to an unknown family from the middle of nowhere, a guy called Elkanah and his two wives. Hannah and Peninnah. Now verse 2 tells us that Peninnah had children, but Hannah didn't. And according to the wording of verse 2, Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. And given that the couple suffered the the all-too-common sadness of not being able to have children, well, they did the normal thing that you'll do back then, which is for Elkanah to take a second wife. Now, I'll say that such an arrangement wasn't forbidden in Old Testament times, but you can imagine it commonly led to many difficulties, like the one like we see in this chapter. Now, you have to ask, with this national crisis in the air, why is our attention drawn to the sad circumstances of one woman in Israel, the childless Hannah? Well, the reason is, Hannah's troubles are actually a representation of Israel's troubles. So Israel is God's nation, and they've been promised to be blessed. But blessing wasn't their experience, just like it wasn't Hannah's experience. But we see in verse 5 that Elkanah's perspective on Hannah's situation, he recognizes that the Lord has closed her womb. Elkanah recognizes that their circumstances are given to them by God. You know, the way Elkanah sees his circumstances is actually the way that we should actually see all of our circumstances, especially when they're not welcome or not ideal. Because you see, all the things that come our way or don't come our way, that's God's doing. You see, God is sovereign over everything that does happen and that doesn't happen in our lives. Now, we'll see shortly that this doesn't mean necessarily that we need to passively accept our particular circumstance. It's going to stay like that forever. But it does mean humbly recognizing God's hand behind the circumstances that we find ourselves Now, due to Peninnah's constant and continual bullying of Hannah year after year, well, Hannah's pushed to the brink of despair. And it gets to the point that one year when they go up to the temple for the annual sacrifice, Hannah, 
who's been a passive participant this whole entire time, she takes action. In verse 9, Hannah stands up from the table to go to the temple to pray. And this is our second point. Now, please notice the, the special logic behind Hannah's prayer. It's what we call faith. Now, you see, knowing if your suffering has ultimately come from God, it keeps on to two things. Firstly, it could lead to fatalism. That is to think, hey, if God is sovereign, then well, who am I to do anything about this situation? And all I have to do is passively accept my lot. But that's actually not the logic of faith. Or, or secondly, it could lead to resentment. That is to say, hey, if, if God has done this to me, then I don't want anything to do with him. Again, that's not the logic of faith either. You see, faith in God means knowing and trusting God's sovereignty and his goodness towards us. You see, in our troubles, real faith will actually lead us to pray to the one who's in control of all things and to trust him. And that's what Hannah did. Now, when you first look at Hannah's prayer, it seems like, on first glance, that Hannah's bargaining with God here. It's as if to say, it's like Hannah saying, Hey God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. But if we look closely at Hannah's prayer, we we'll see that she actually isn't bargaining with God. There are three things to note about Hannah's prayer. Firstly, Hannah addresses God that acknowledges who he is. Uh, in verse 11, she addresses God as the Lord Almighty. In other words, she recognizes that God is the sovereign ruler over all things and not her personal genie. Uh, secondly, she approaches God in terms that acknowledges her place before him. As you see in the prayer, she keeps referring to herself as your servant. And you see, she knows who she is before God and comes before God in humility. Thirdly, she asks what she deeply desired, which in the end was God's attention. You see there in verse 11, she actually asks God to look on her misery, and to remember her. Again, here is to face logic. Instead of pushing God away, faith understands that there's nowhere else to go. God is sovereign. God is good. And Hannah's only hope is that for God in his goodness to attend to her sorrow. Now, this section actually ends with Hannah actually coming away as a different person to the one that Elkanah was comforting back in verse 8. So, even at this point, her prayer hasn't been answered yet. Yet, verse 18 tells us that Hannah is now no longer weeping, no longer refusing food, no longer sad. And so, as she's walking out of the temple, she has peace. Not because her prayer got answered, 
but because she has cast all her anxiety onto God, knowing that he cares for her. It really shows how much Hannah is trusting God in all of this. Well, from verse 19 we see God's response to Hannah's prayer and God does remember her. And we see Hannah gives birth to a boy who she calls Samuel. Now, while Elkanah and Hannah are good examples of what God's people are to be like, we have to be very careful when we take characteristics of a person in a biblical narrative and and just apply it straight to us if that's the only thing we do. Because here in 1 Samuel 1, there's clearly a problem. You see, are we meant to conclude on the basis of 1 Samuel 1 that if you're sad because you can't have children or sad because of some other disappointment in life, that if you pray earnestly to God and expect your disappointment to turn into joy because you get what you long for? Is that the message of 1 Samuel 1? Well, no. Because here's the thing. Uh, Back in the days of 1 Samuel, there would have been tons of other women who were childless back in Israel. And it's reasonable soon that for these many other women who, uh, who were childless, they were still not given a child. You see, we're actually told the story of Hannah, not because it's typical of every troubled person in Israel, but precisely because her story is unusual. Of all the troubled women in Israel, God chose to grant the prayer to this one. You see, the unusualness of Hannah's story therefore limits the sense in which we can apply Hannah directly as an example for us. So, why was Hannah's prayer granted? Was it because she was so sincere in praying? Or was it because she made that extraordinary vow? Well, no. You see, 1 Samuel is primarily not about Hannah. It's primarily about God. 1 Samuel is showing us that God cares for Hannah. And as he does that, he's caring for Israel. As this young boy, Samuel, will turn out to be the part of, the, of God's answer to Israel's leadership problem. And so the point of chapter 1 is that God cares, both at the micro level as well as the macro level. And so, keeping that in mind, well, in our passage, something else happens. We're actually introduced to a contrast to Hannah. And we meet another character in the narrative. We meet Eli the priest. Now, Eli has effectively been the human leader for the Israelites at this time. And we read that when Eli sees Hannah, instead of recognizing someone who's praying, he thinks she's drunk. Now, Eli's misunderstanding of the situation actually raises questions about his competence. Because you see, if Israel's leader can't tell the difference between a godly woman praying to a drunk rambling, hey, no wonder Israel is in a leadership crisis. But Israel's leadership situation is actually far worse than that. 
And that actually brings us to the second half of chapter 2, uh, the part that Serene didn't read for us, uh, where we meet Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And so let me just briefly summarize the second half of chapter 2. So in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 2, we meet Eli's sons. And, the, and verse 12 says they were scoundrels. They were wicked. In summary, instead of serving God's people, they were using their leadership position for personal gain. And they were so bad that in verse 22, they mistreated women sexually as part of their abuse of power. Now the thing is, I think that that sometimes doesn't shock us too much. Because we're so used to seeing corruption and abuse in high places, uh, we're seeing it so often. Uh, Even earlier this week, the One Nation candidate, Steve Dickerson, had to resign due to his behaviour that's very similar to what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. Uh, Behaviour like this is meant to shock us. Because this isn't the way God intended leadership to be like. And for Eli, even though he wasn't wicked, or in his old age, he, he wasn't able to provide the leadership that Israel needed. And so we see in verse 22, we find out that Eli knows everything about what his sons have done. And so what does he do about it? Well, please read verse 23 of me, chapter 2. He said, uh, we see this. Chapter 2, verse 23. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons. The report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. And that's it. So while Eli's words are true and right, there's something pathetic about them, don't you think? There's no demand for repentance. There's no slap on the wrist. He just didn't have the strength to curb their conduct. And in the end, verse 25 tells us that his sons just ignore him. So you can see that Israel suffered from the corruption of Eli's sons, as well as the incompetence of their father. And what we're seeing here in chapter 1 and 2 is, what we see Eli as a contrast to Hannah... But we also see a contrast of Eli's sons to Hannah's son, Samuel. And for the rest of chapter 2, the narrator goes out of his way to show how the boy Samuel is starting to become the leader that Eli and his sons were meant to be. So just quickly, let me summarize for you. In verse 26, the narrator points out that Samuel is growing in favor with God and with his people. And in verse 18... He's even looking the part where he's wearing the linen ephod, which is what the priest wears as he ministers before the Lord. You see, God's at work during this time of Israel's history to do something about Israel's leadership. So keep your eye on Samuel over these next few weeks. But the big thing that is for us here is The heart of the problem for Eli and his sons is that in the end, they're the exact opposite of Hannah and Samuel, where they didn't recognize who God really is. And because of that, they didn't live their lives 
in relation to that reality. And when people don't regard God as they should, and instead are driven by their own selfishness, then their leadership will always have problems. And that's the same thing for us. Uh, If you're here, and you're in a position of leadership, whether it's here at church, or at work, or within your family, to be the leader God wants you to be, it all starts with having God in His rightful place. Recognizing His sovereignty over you, and over everyone, and everything that you're responsible for. Because if God shapes your framework in how you do things, it will drive you to be the leader that he wants you to be. To be the leader who humbly serves those you lead. Not to be driven by selfish motives. It's when you have God's perspective on the world that it will protect you from becoming a leader like Eli and his sons. Uh, We're going to briefly have a look at Hannah's response to God's answer to the start of chapter chapter 2, which is sometimes we call Hannah's song. It's the last thing we'll do tonight. Now, can I say, I I know the subtitle in our Bible says, says Hannah's prayer, but can I just remind you that the subtitles aren't part of the original text, and I reckon it reads more like a song than a prayer. And this song actually sums up the big idea of 1 Samuel as a book. That God is the one who cares, that God is the one who's sovereign, and in particular, God is the one of reversals, where he'll turn the world upside down. As Serene read uh, chapter 2 for us, uh, did you notice the long list of reversals of how Hannah sees in our world? Uh, Let me pick three firstly. Uh, You see in verse 4 there, those who are strong are made weak, and the weak are now made strong. Verse 5, those who have plenty now have nothing. Those who are hungry aren't hungry anymore. And in verse 7, the poor are now made wealthy. The humble are now exalted. What Hannah sees here is God can reverse any human circumstance completely if it's his will. Because he's the one who determines all things. And so, Hannah's response to God is to trust him and to live her life with him at the controls. Can I ask you, do you see life as Hannah does? Is her response your response in life? Because if you want that peace that Hannah experienced, it will come from actually believing the God who set the foundations of the world, believing in Him, knowing that He cares for us, and that He can reverse our circumstances, whether it's in this life or the next. Where does God, where does the God of the universe fit in your thinking about life. You know the other thing that's interesting about Hannah's song? Uh, many years later, another woman would pray a prayer that sounds very much like Hannah's song. When the Virgin Mary got confirmation of the baby that was growing inside of her, 
she prayed this prayer in Luke chapter 1. I've just got a snippet there. And it's actually called Mary's Song. And thankfully the subtitles have actually titled it that way. And as you can see just in that snippet I got there, you can see the language of reversal. has very similar to Hannah's song. Raising the humble, filling the hungry. You see, Mary knew what Hannah knew, but more. Mary's been told that the child that she will bear will be a very great leader, if not, in fact, the greatest leader. The king whose kingdom will never end. The king who will turn the world upside down. The king who will ultimately care for us by dying on the cross so that we can be saved from our sins. You see, Hannah's prayer, song, is the anticipation of Mary's song, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And that's the last thing I want to say this, tonight. God's ultimate leader, Jesus, has now come. And because of that, we have an even greater confirmation of how God cares for us. An even greater confirmation of how he's in control of all things. And so because of Jesus, we've got even more reason to trust in him through what we go through in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord. That you're the one who has everything under your control. And we thank you that you care for us. And we thank you that you care for us in the biggest way. By raising up the ultimate leader the Lord Jesus, to bring us back into a relationship with yourself. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll keep growing our understanding of you, that you'll empower us to lead others and to live our lives in the reality of who you really are, and we pray that you'll help us live lives of obedience and trust. Heavenly Father, please keep growing us in our trust in you in all the circumstances that we face in life. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.